You are listening to Retirement Lifestyle Advocates Radio. I'm your host, Dennis Tubergen. Glad you decided to tune in today. Hey, I've got a terrific new show lined up for you today. Joining me in segments two and three today, best-selling author, Mr. Harry Dent. We'll get his take and perspective as to what's going on in the economy. Will we have a V-shaped recovery? Uh, in his view, where will stocks head? And uh, Harry, as you'll discover in the conversation that I have with him is solidly in the deflationary camp. Well, I've had other guests that are solidly in the inflationary camp. Well, I have long been tracking both deflationary trends and inflationary trends in order to better advise clients on how to adjust their portfolio And I have long advocated the two-bucket approach to managing investment assets to help protect assets from both eventual outcomes. So presently, I think there is a lot of evidence that we're seeing deflation in many parts of the economy. Energy prices have fallen. That includes gasoline, fuel oil, and electricity. Uh, Energy commodities uh, down 33% over the last 12 months. Gasoline down 33% over the last 12 months. Fuel oil down 37% over the last 12 months. The prices of new vehicles and used vehicles also down over the last 12 months. Apparel down 7.9%. Transportation services down 8.7%. If you have gone out and attempted to buy an airline ticket, you know that that is true. There is, however, one notable exception to these deflationary symptoms that are emerging in the economy. That is food prices. Groceries over the last 12 months up 4%. Eating out, dining costs outside the home up about 5%. So you're seeing this price action of inflation in certain items and deflation in others. Now, I believe that these signs of deflation will continue to appear until such time as we reach a tipping point, if indeed we reach that tipping point. And if we do, at that point, money creation may turn deflation into inflation. Now, I talk about this and the two-bucket approach in my new book, Revenue Sourcing. Thanks to all of you who have invested in the book and supported the book. I appreciate it very much. The book has been a number one bestseller on Amazon in four different categories. And if you don't yet have the book, you could go to retirementlifestyleadvocates.com forward slash books. That's retirementlifestyleadvocates.com forward slash books and get a copy if you would like. Now, what is all this going to mean for stocks? Well, John Hussman of the Hussman Investment Trust commented on this very topic about a week ago, and he talked about the fact that economic recessions, or actually he said severe economic recessions, often feature what might be called an incubation phase. We get this exuberant rebound from initial stock market losses, and this rebound is really not related to any positive economic news or any improving economic fundamentals or any improving corporate profits. 
It's just a rebound that happens because markets typically don't go straight up or straight down for any lengthy period of time. The reality is, though, that when you take a look at current valuations, they are much higher than they've been almost at any point in history. We'll talk about this more in the last segment of today's program, but there are a lot of comparisons made between the present time and the Spanish flu pandemic, which took place from 1918 to 1920, about the time of World War I. Well, the argument is that once the Spanish flu pandemic had passed, stocks went into a bull market that lasted for nearly a decade. That period of time, of course, is known historically as the Roaring Twenties. Now, what this argument does not observe, does not take into account, is that market valuations in 1920 stood at a quarter, less than a quarter of current levels. So we have a post-pandemic period here, or it appears that we are entering a post-pandemic period, with stocks valued significantly higher than they were at that time. In fact, to have equal valuations, stocks would have to drop 75% from current levels. So if stocks drop 75% from current levels, we have the valuations we had in 1920. So the point here is that valuations dictate future stock performance to a much greater extent than any other, any other factor, including a pandemic. So we are looking for more downside in stocks, maybe not immediately, but over the next several years. And I continue to stand by my prediction of a Dow to gold ratio of two, perhaps even one. That gets the Dow under 10,000. In fact, uh, my next guest, uh, Harry Dent, agrees. So what should you do? Well, you should stay informed. You should educate yourself because, as I often say here on the program, nobody cares as much about your money as you do. To that end, I would encourage you to check out the resources at retirementlifestyleadvocates.com. And if you'd like to get a copy of the Revenue Sourcing book, you can go to retirementlifestyleadvocates.com forward slash books to get a copy. I'll be back after these words with my guest, Harry Dent. You are listening to RLA Radio. I am your host, Dennis Tubergen. Joining me once again on today's program is returning guest, Mr. Harry Dent. Uh, Harry is a uh, multi-time best-selling author. Uh, he's a renowned economist, uh, and he actually has a free newsletter I would encourage you to check out at uh, harrydent.com. That's harrydent.com. Um, his latest book is Zero Hour, uh, but Harry, I want to start because I think I interviewed you when your book, The Great Depression Ahead, was published, and at the time, it seemed like prosperity was everywhere, but my question for you to get started is, are we there? It, you know, Dennis, it does look like uh, I've had that prediction uh, all the way back to the 80s when I first discovered my demographic tools for predicting when the baby boom generation or any generation of people will spend the most money and when they won't and when inflation will be high and low. All these things that allowed me to generate what I call a four 
season cycle. And then we've been moving in this great boom from the fall bubble boom cycle to the winter deleveraging cycle. And so that started back in 2008. What, what happened, which has not happened in history before, is central banks finally just woke up with Keynesian theories behind them that finally got accepted in recent decades, even though they came up in the 30s in response to the Depression. They said, oh, well, we don't have to have a downturn or a depression, you know, when things got really bad in 2008. We just print tons of money to cover it over and everything will be all right, which is the stupidest thing I've ever heard. I, I, I do not like Keynes as an economist, by the way. <laughs> He's the one that came up with that. Dig ditches and then fill them back up. You know, anything to prevent a recession. I see recessions as good for the economy, like the common coal. It clears things out. It makes businesses honest. You know, it forces innovation, just like this virus. I've I'm already got innovations in my business and people I work with because of this virus forced us to do more stuff online. So the, the, the banks put this thing off, caused a strong rebound out of a downturn that was not finished doing its business, deleveraging debt and bubbles and that sort of stuff. And then we get this bigger bubble than ever because all they're doing is printing trillion now up to 20, over 20 trillion now. Dollars just been printed. It goes straight into the financial markets. It's not going to consumers and still recently. It's not going to businesses, not going into the banking system and creating expansion of real money through loans to get paid back and stuff. It's going into financial assets. So stocks are at their highest levels ever when the economy's been the slowest recovery ever in history. And now we're at a point where they're having to print as much money as they did in the entire 11-year cycle in just one year by the federal banks, and we've gone from a $1 trillion deficit to projected $4 trillion plus just in the last several months in fiscal stimulus. So basically, the governments and central banks have finally panicked and just basically lost their minds, and that's a sign that, yes, we're at it. This, this thing's going to blow. Uh, this recovery's going to be V, but it's going to be truncated. I am telling you, we, and this is a 100% certain statement. We do not later this year, early next year, get back to where we were because there's certain industries that are not coming back for years from cruise ships to airlines. I was supposed to make two uh, two-week tours of, of Australia this year, which would have been $25,000 minimum in air, but actually 30000 minimum just for me, not the rest of the group, in airfares, and that's gone, and we're doing everything online this year, and I probably won't go until sometime next year. That just isn't going to come back. I am, Dennis, for the first time in my entire life, adult life, I am not going to fly anywhere this year um, except over to my little island on a hill hopper, you know, 30-minute flight. So th these sort of things that the markets are overexpensed. So, yes, I think it's it, we had that. I, I warned that the first sign that the bubble is finally bursting, as much as they've kept it going and kept it going, no matter what anybody said, um, the first sign is that you get a 40% crash in two and a half months or less. Well, that's what we got, basically, in five weeks, about 40% average around the world. We had 35% uh, for the S&T 500 and 44% for the broad small cap index. So you average those two, that's about 40%. And now we're in what I call the rebound period. And this is great because I know good and well, Dennis, and, and I don't blame people because I'm predicting something so radical so dramatic that nobody thinks it's possible. And they think, oh, well, that may have happened back in the 30s, but that'll never happen again because blah, blah, blah. You look at history, it happens over and over again, but, but only once in a lifetime. So 
So I knew most people wouldn't get that first crash, but now we're in that rebound where people think, well, maybe it'll be okay, and the market rebounds for four, five, six months. And I think by the election, and probably as early as August, maybe October, that this this wave of rebound will peak out and we will go into a deeper downturn just like we did in the, in the early 30s. And just like we did from the tech, the tech bubble didn't come in a time of depression, but it was an equal extreme bubble in stocks. And it had a 41% first crash. It had a rebound for several months. And then it went down over two years, 78%. And in the Great Depression, the Dow stocks went down 89% because that wasn't a deeper downturn. So I'm seeing more like a Great Depression scenario here. All this preventing the banks from going under, keeping zombie loans, zombie companies. I, I just got a graph yesterday. I love it. I saw this guy on CNBC and I got this graph. He's charted the number of zombie companies, the percentage of zombie companies in our economy, public companies that are still operating but can't pay their debts. It's 18.9%. That is huge. Incredible. So those companies fail, you have a depression. You're going to have, they, they're, it, it's zombie banks keeping zombie loans alive because governments are not forcing them to write them down and keep flooding them with money so they don't have to. They're keeping zombie companies companies going, keeping zombie jobs going, all of that's going to have to go down the toilet. And when it does, that's how you get a depression. You're deleveraging debt. You're forcing companies that are marginal and unproductive to go under so money can go and market share can go to productive companies, which is a good thing. And you're forcing employees and older failing companies to go to better ones. And that's how you recover from a depression healthier than ever. And we came out of the 1932 bottom in stocks. We came roaring out of that downturn. The, the 2009 bottom with all this quantitative easing that did not let the process continue to work until we deleveraged enough companies and debt and jobs and stuff, we came out crawling. And, and now we got stocks super bubbled up in a bad economy when at least in 2007 and 2000, they bubbled up in a good economy. So, so this is a reckoning coming. And I'm telling you, there's just one thing to do. You get out of the way. It's that simple. You get out of stocks get the highest quality bond. Just, just in the, I told you, this crash, this 40% crash proved what I've been saying to do in advance. You get out of stocks and real estate and bubbly assets, and that includes gold, by the way. And, and when it goes down, it's the highest quality bonds, the 10, 20, 30-year treasury bonds that do the best because they're not going to default. I mean, nothing else, the U.S. government can print money to pay that in. They're not going to default. AAA corporate bonds, and there aren't many of those, and even the B and A- minus went down because of the severity of the virus hitting certain industries. You get in the safest bonds, they benefit from the deleveraging and deflation, falling interest rates. Everything else goes down, including commodities. Again, including gold. And then you reinvest about two to three years from now when we've been through the real downturn because we didn't get. 2008-9 began to look exactly like the Great Depression, but they cut it off. They just suddenly said, enough is enough, and they printed I think all central banks printed $3 trillion in just one year to, to get us out of that, and they printed $0.20, cents, and now we've printed another 4 or $5 trillion just in the last year on top of that. This is crazy. You can't make problems go away by printing money out of thin air. I'm sorry. Any economist that believes that should be in front of a firing squad. I'm sorry. That, that is so stupid. 
and so ignorant of the laws of life itself. Nothing to do with economics. You don't get something for nothing. And denial is the most predictable thing that human beings do, where they have anything from a drug addiction to some emotional problem or something else. People just deny it and hope it'll go away. And that's what we've been doing since 2009. And now we're going to see what I call the depression that we had to have. There's a famous, I, I lecture a lot in Australia, and, and this Keating guy was their prime minister in the only recession they've had in 30 years, 1990. And, and he said, this is the recession we had to have. You know, like, you did, yeah, and I agree with that. You have to let the economy rebalance and recalibrate, just like we go to sleep every night, you know, or just like we have a common cold every couple of months. It's different to catch a virus or malaria or something or a bug from the outside than it is to have your own body say, oh, it's time to clean house. Um, you're going to have to, like, lay down for a couple of days while I have a cold and clean things out. You'll feel better, and that's what happens. Well, people fight colds, too which is not good. So, so that's what I see, the, the Great Depression, the winter season, which I define. I, 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 I said from my first books in the late 80s that Japan would crash their bubbles first because their baby boom came ahead. We would have the great bubbles in the 80s, 90s, and in 2007. We would start to get in trouble, winter season 2008 to 2023. But that winter season would be over by late 2022-23. So I see the last crash being more like the first crash in the Great Depression. And 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 the first crash we had since the trunk had been like the second crash of the Great Depression from 30 37 to 40 and then we come out of it but we're going to see the worst on the back end. But but I'm telling you one thing I'll warn you right now Dennis if I'm right, and I am going to damn be right about this, uh, it's been too long coming, economists will finally say, oh, my God, now we're entering a 10 to 14-year downturn like Japan had and the U.S. had in the Great Depression. I'm not saying that. We will be over with this. It'll, it will be dramatic. It will be the worst we'll see in our lifetime. Uh, we'll be over this and be coming out of it in 2023-24, and that's, that's the good news. And the really good news is investors that get out of the way of this bubble are going to be able to buy real estate, 30 40 50 or 60% cheaper stocks, 60 70 80 90% cheaper businesses, gold will probably go down the least of most commodities, maybe down only like 40, 50% from here. You'll be able to buy gold at under 1,000, and then it's going to go to three, three to 5,000 when Asians can't get enough of it. Asians are the big buyers of gold, not central banks, not investors. Asian consumers, and particularly Indians, who I have as my number one country, India is going to be the China of the next boom. Um, and nobody, even Indians, economists don't think that's possible and it's 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 totally baked in the cake from my demographic and, and and urbanization statistics and stuff so i know that's a long answer to a simple question but sometimes it takes that yeah no great uh for those of you who are just joining us i'm chatting today with mr harry dent harry is a multi-time best-selling author you can check out his free newsletter at harrydent.com and Harry, you 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 alluded to uh, or talked about the, the the craziness we're seeing as far as monetary policy. Uh, the Fed has been propping up the repo market since last September. Uh, banks now have a zero reserve requirement. They've printed more than just in the U.S. here about three and a half trillion by my calculation this year. Yes. Are we going to see a similar banking outcome to what we saw in the in the depression when then President Franklin Roosevelt declared a bank holiday? 
I, I think it is going to be something like this because everybody's saying, oh, you know, all this monetary, all this money printing, it did make the bank stronger stuff. Then, so my question, like you just hinted at, why in September of last year did the repo market blow up? And, and everybody's saying, oh, that was just a minor thing. It was $760 billion in it a few huge. months. The Fed, see, it was huge. It showed how weak all the Fed did was just start selling off some bonds and draining the stimulus over all that time. Just, a, you know, about 30 percent. I know 20 percent. It was a 20 percent drain of the big stimulus program over many, many years. Just that 20 percent and the banks blow up. Imagine if what I'm saying, you got all these zombie companies and no matter how I many, this stimulus is not going to reach all companies and particularly the smallest companies. It's just not. It's impossible. The money keeps running out. People don't even know how to do it. There's no way to do this forever. There's so many. I mean, you got Hertz and, and Neiman Marcus and J.C. Penney and Jay Crew. You got major leading market share. Not not failing companies going under. You know why they're going under? They borrow too much in easy times, encouraged by this low interest rate environment with free money. So there's a, there, there's the penalty to all this. Free money is you get zombie companies and loans that, that weigh on the economy because they're not productive and you keep tying up people and capital in them. And low interest rates encourages people to speculate instead of invest in real things. The biggest thing driving up stocks, literally 90% of the net stock buying, it's actually more than that, has been corporations buying their own stocks. Not retail investors, not institutional investors, not foreign. They've all been net slight negative. It's been companies buying their own stocks with cheap money and with cash flow they wouldn't have without all this free money. So so instead of investing in new capacity that'll pay off in the future and create future stuff, they've been speculating on their own stocks that are now overvalued and going to crash. And when they need the money to to survive in the greatest shakeout since the 1930s were high, you know, high percentages of people unemployed, high percentages of banks and companies went under, they're not going to have the money and their shareholders are going to say, why aren't you buying our stock now down 80%? Or, or where's that money we have? Oh, you spent it speculating on our own stock and didn't really tell us the risk of that. I'm telling you, this is going to look for economists, for the Fortune 500 uh, CEOs and executives, um, and, and politicians, like the stupidest thing, the greatest, so that, that my, my next book's going to be called The Greatest Financial Con of All Time. That's what it's going to look like years from now. In retrospect, right now, what do we get? Warren Buffett says, oh, this is just fine. All the politicians and all the top economists and everybody, yeah, they're just doing the right thing. We don't want to have a recession. Oh, my God. I mean, have a few bad companies go under and have a few, you know, people get kicked out of bad jobs. This is what we always do throughout history. It's a necessary part. So it it just shows me economists, politicians uh, don't understand our economy. And, and the dumb money, Dennis, for the first time in history, although there are a lot of small traders on call options right now, that, that's at record rates. But in general, the biggest money invested in this bubble has been the smartest people, the top CEOs in the world and the richest 1% of people buying overvalued real estate in places like Manhattan, San Francisco, London, Singapore, Sydney, Australia, Beijing, you know, Shanghai, etc. The richest money have gotten sucked in this bubble. So that 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 is very unusual. Cuz cuz government's made it irresistible. 
Well, that's all the time we have for this segment. My guest today is Mr. Harry Dent. You can check out his free newsletter at harrydent.com. And I'll return after these words and continue my conversation with Harry. Stay with us. Welcome back to RLA Radio. I'm Dennis Tuberg, and I'm chatting today with Harry Dent. Harry is a multi-time best-selling author, and he is making his daily newsletter available for free. You just have to go to harrydent.com and sign up for it, and I would encourage you to do that. Harry, uh, you know, the, this, this coronavirus uh, really caused a lot of economic damage, but uh, I read a quote, and I think the, the quote is actually attributed to Patrick Wyman, and he said that uh, pandemics in and of themselves uh, don't cause economic collapse. It just shows you what's already broken. Would you agree with that? Uh, I've been saying that from the beginning, that people should not confuse just think that the virus caused this deep crash. The virus was the perfect trigger. I mean, there's tons of triggers I have on my list. Of course, I'm not going to see a virus coming, because that's one of the few things I can't predict. But yes, it, it just gives us a shock, just enough to expose how many companies are already struggling with debt and marginal products and market share positions. And, and again, I, I also relate my story being here in the, in the Hurricane Maria, in late 2017, I moved here in 2016, we had a shock like that that just knocked out the economy for three months. And that's about what this has been, just a couple of months. And when, when things came back, not only they didn't come back fully, 20% of the restaurants within a buck and a half of me never came back. And it was the good ones that went under, which was really unfortunate. So that that's the nature of it. It shows the weaknesses. Puerto Rico had been in a recession for a long time when they lost their pharma tax. It advantage and they never had fully recovered so the hurricane just kind of showed hey you guys are still weak and and boy it became really obvious so you know that that's that's why i say we come back be it first because there's certain industries will come right back but there are tons of industries that will not come back and in those eight 19 percent zombie companies i quoted earlier with you you know those companies are not coming back. Even with short-term stimulus, they were already broken and should have gone under in 2009 and 10 when they came up with all this stimulus and, and kept the banks funding zombie companies and zombie loans and all this and zombie jobs. So, so that that's the truth. Yes, that that's that is really the perfect. I mean, the whole the, the Spanish flu took out, infected a third of the population of the world back then, killed 50 to 100 million people. You know how much the Dow went down? 11%. And partly because it was in at the tail end of World War One, and, and stocks were not overvalued, and people poo-pooed it as long as they could, but still, even when it killed those people, it did not cause anywhere near this calamity in markets. We have markets that are on crack, so overvalued that all you got to do is throw a firecracker at them and they'll be down. All you got to do is elect Joe Biden and he raised corporate taxes and you're down 20, 30%. Nevertheless, show how many companies really shouldn't be alive. So Harry, how bad do you see the the hit to GDP? I've, I've interviewed... Uh... John Williams, who said second quarter of this year, we're down 50% over second quarter of last year. How do you see uh, this? How big do you see the economic hit being? And then where do you see the unemployment rate ultimately going? Well, you know, GDP is harder. You know, I, I've always been thinking, you know, 20% or so. But I, I do what, what I did right when this came out. I took the 1980 to 82 scenario. That was the 
the, the bottom of the last generational downturn where there'd been a lot of stimulus after the 73, 74 crash and 75 recession. And then there was one final downturn. And you had the same thing. You had a sharp crash and a one quarter down in GDP. And then unemployment went up to 8%. And then it came back up to six or something. And then you had the real downturn for two years afterwards and it went up to 11%. So I just told people, look, I double those numbers for this. I've been predicting that, that unemployment will peak around 16% in this phase, which is probably already peaking, you know, somewhere around May, June. And then we come out of it and maybe it gets up to, you know, only 10 or 12% unemployment. And then we go down to near depression levels, 22% or higher. And, uh, by 2022, 23. So I, I, that's just a rough estimate. But I, I think, I mean, people have been over forecasting the hit to the economy. I mean, and the reason is, They've been they've been under forecasting how much stimulus. I mean, I mean, every people are getting stimulus checks that shouldn't. Businesses are just getting free loans and faking this or. I mean, this is just crazy. I mean, a lot of stimulus has come in, so the stimulus is keeping this from being a bigger shock. Um, and people who've been um, laid off to get these business loans, you gotta you gotta keep people employed. So people are trying to hire them back, even though they normally wouldn't. But they have to do that to qualify the loan. So, but that's still, I mean, to end up at over 20, I, I originally said all the way back it'd be 15 to 20% unemployment in this last crash. Now I'm saying 20 to 25 is what I see happening. So, Harry, we've talked about the fact that the, the, the Fed is manufacturing all this money. And as I recall from our past conversations, you've always been uh, in the deflation camp. And I think you've alluded to that anyway in the first segment today. Can you imagine a scenario whereby perhaps the Fed prints money and buys stocks directly, that this turns from a deflationary event to an inflationary or even hyperinflationary event? No, absolutely 100% not. But you, you just said it in how you said it. The money would go into stocks. And stocks do not create consumer price inflation, which creates, if it goes to extreme, hyperinflation. And the hyperinflation scenarios of the past, first of all, are rare, usually in small emerging banana republic countries, with the exception of Germany. And Germany lost World War I, was already bank worse than bankrupt from losing that war, had borrowed funny foreign money to fund it, and then had to borrow more foreign money to, and, and inflate their own economy to pay the reparations, which were just ridiculous to stop on top of that. That was a rare developed country thing. But it's when countries that are that are dependent on foreign debt that they overborrow, and then when they can't pay back those debt, their currencies crash, and then that creates more and more money to pay off the failing debts. That's the only way you get in hyperinflation. Look, we have printed $20 trillion before the virus. I'd say we're already up at $25 trillion globally in developed countries, and we... <laughs> gotten above 2% inflation in U.S. and one5 in Europe and 1% in Japan sustainably. I mean, how are you going to get, I, I think even with all the stimulus, we may get a little higher inflation before we go down in the next several months. But I don't think it's possible to create substantial inflation, and it is impossible. I'm going to repeat this. Impossible in this deflationary already winter season environment to create hyperinflation. It happens in the inflation season, which, by the way, was 19, 
69 to 82 with the highest inflation in history, that's a time where if you'd have done crazy stuff like this, high inflation could have easily turned into hyperinflation. You just can't do it here. You can't. They've already printed more money than anybody thought possible. They could print 50 trillion dollars, and I'd say still not create hyperinflation because the money would not go into the consumer and business system. It would only go into financial asset bubbles. Like they, That would cause stocks and real estate for some time to go higher, and then it means you just have a bigger bubble crash. you got to understand, when debts fail and when bubbles, financial asset bubbles crash, you are instantly destroying money. I don't care how much the Fed has created, as much or more than they've – well, way more than they've created – Gets gets into these bubbles because it builds on itself, and then way more than they create it gets eliminated. They cannot win this war, and it is impossible to create hyperinflation. I will stand on that prediction. Now, uh, if this were Zimbabwe and they were doing what we're doing, and especially on foreign debt, yes, absolutely, no, will not happen. That's the last thing you should fear. So, Harry, uh, you had a rather ominous forecast for stocks when we talked in the first segment. Uh, where do you see using benchmarks that, that our listeners are going to be familiar with, say the Dow or the S&P? How, how do you see this playing out? And to the extent you're comfortable, uh, percentages or numbers? Okay, yeah, I think that I find people do know where the Dow is even better than the S&P, and nobody has a clue what the hell the NASDAQ is. <laughs> the Dow uh, just, re, you know, in February peaked very close to 30,000. Um, um, it, it dropped down to, gosh, I do, I do forget that, but well, like, just under 20. Back. Yeah. 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 Just under 20. It, it, it's bounced back, uh, to, to over 26,000. I think it could go back down to 21 to 23 in a correction here, go up a little higher, maybe 27, 28, not quite make a new high, what I call a big bear market rally. And then, and this has been my forecast for years, it ends up bottoming around late 2022. 5,000 is the best projection, somewhere between 3,800 and 6,600. It's going to go at least down to the 2009 low. Um, I, I have a megaphone pattern that is really the most reliable projection pattern here through the lows since 2002, which would project 5,000. And I also use what was the market value that when the bubble really took off in, in late 94, early 95, and that would give you 3,800. So that's the range, 3,800 to 6,600, best forecast, 5,000. That's an 85% drop on the Dow. That that's is not something to listen to your stockbroker and sit through and wait and stocks will always come back. Try coming back from 85% down. You will be dead before it happens. That's another promise I'll make you. I don't know that the Dow ever gets adjusted for inflation. I'm projecting the Dow will not get higher than it got in this boom, even in the next boom and even not adjusted for inflation. It would take at least uh, to 2036, 37 to even have a hope of getting back to here. So well, not a good thing to sit through. Well, the clock tells me, Harry, we've got to end our conversation there. Thank you for joining us today. Our guest today has been Mr. Harry Dent. You can get his free daily newsletter at harrydent.com. I'd encourage you to check it out. And, uh, Harry, we'll uh, try to check back in with you here maybe fall time and uh, yeah. see what you're thinking. Yeah, late, yeah, late summer, early fall would be a great time, yeah. Terrific. Well, we will return after these words. You are listening to RLA Radio. I'm your host, Dennis Tubergen. Thanks again to Mr. Harry Dent for taking time out of his busy schedule this past week to chat with us about 
where he thinks the markets are going, and I want to continue to talk about that in this segment. In the first segment of today's program, I shared with you a piece that was written by Mr. John Hussman of the Hussman Investment Trust, and he said that, and I'm quoting, severe economic recessions, which aptly describes where we are now, severe economic recessions often feature what might be called an incubation phase, where an exuberant rebound from initial stock market losses becomes detached from the quiet underlying deterioration of economic fundamentals and corporate balance sheets. So in other words, Hussman is saying that the market goes up as the economy is going down. And he explains it this way. He said, part of the current enthusiasm of investors seems to be the idea that the stock market typically reaches its low before the economy does. But this certainly was not true in the 2001 recession. And in this segment, I'm going to look at several stock market declines. And I'm going to share with you one similarity that has existed every time. He said on the idea that the second quarter of 2020 will be the low point for the economy, there is a superficial sensibility in looking over the valley. This is a very important point that Hussman makes. He says this, the problem is that post-recession bull markets, stock markets run up, stock market run-ups after an economic downturn typically begin at valuations of about 40% of where we are today. So in other words, in order for our stock valuations to reach the point that they typically are on average after, at the beginning rather, of a bull market run-up after a recession, we've got to see a decline in stocks from here of 60%. Now, when you study history, this is certainly the case. Hussman says the current incubation phase is reminiscent of 2008. Most of you listening to today's program undoubtedly remember 2008. Early that year, AIG admitted that it could not reliably quantify its losses. In March, Bear Stearns failed. The Associated Press published an article discussing the unprecedented interventions by the Federal Reserve, including Bernanke's creation of maiden lane shell companies to absorb bad mortgage-backed debt. Well, after the failure of Bear Stearns, after everybody recognized what was going on in the subprime lending market, and after the Federal Reserve launched unprecedented interventions, the S&P rallied in 2008 to a level that was within 9% of its October 2007 peak. So after all the bad news, the S&P rallied to within 9% of its peak seven months earlier. The notion was, and the talking heads were saying that it's because all the bad news had been discounted. 
the S&P 500 then lost 53% of its value. The same thing happened in 2001. In May of 2001, it was widely recognized that an economic recession started in March of that year. The S&P 500, the S&P 500 stock index had been in a bear market for over a year. But the S&P 500 rebounded to within 14% of its peak. In fact, the Wall Street Journal at the time observed this. Though economists are expecting this year to be the economy's worst since 1991, only a tiny percentage think the economy is in a recession. Well, from that rally peak, the S&P 500 lost an additional 40% of its value by October of 2002. The NASDAQ, the technology heavy index, the NASDAQ 100, lost an additional 60% of its value, bringing its overall bear market loss to 83%. So what's my point? Well, as I've often stated, markets don't go straight up or straight down. In 2001, in 2008, there was an initial decline followed by a strong rally, which was followed by an even bigger decline. What if we go back and look at 1929? Let's look at the Dow Jones Industrial Average of stocks from 1929 to 1933. Well, the Dow declined initially by a little more than 40%. Then it rebounded, and then the big decline happened. The Dow lost more than 80% peak to trough. Well, when you look at that initial decline of the Dow in 1929 of 40%, followed by a rally, it's very, very similar to the 38% decline that stock investors experienced this year. If you look at the market bottom in March, top to bottom, the market fell about 38%. Since that time, the market has been rebounding. So you have this pattern, this pattern that when you study history existed in 2001, existed in 2008, existed in 1929, and it seems to be repeating itself now. You have an initial decline, 40% or so. Harry Dent pointed out that that's a pretty common number for an initial decline in today's interview. It's followed by a rebound, followed by the bigger leg down. So we have a situation that today's market looks eerily similar to 1929 and looks a lot like the markets that existed in 2001 and 2008. And with valuations at historic highs, it's not a good time to hold stocks in my view. So the Fed is engaging in massive amounts of money printing. That will be inflationary. We have stocks looking like they could decline, and if they do, that will be deflationary. 
That, again, is a terrific argument for the two-bucket approach that the book Revenue Sourcing explains. If you have not yet gotten a copy of the Revenue Sourcing book, I would invite you to go to retirementlifestyleadvocates.com forward slash books to request a copy. The web address, again, is retirementlifestyleadvocates.com forward slash books, and you can request a copy. You can also go to retirementlifestyleadvocates.com and sign up for our weekly Portfolio Watch newsletter. It is free. There's no reason not to be a subscriber. We'll keep you up to speed as to what's going on in the markets and the economy. That's the program for this week. Hope you got something you can use. I'll be back again next week.